I'd invite you to take your Bibles this morning and open them to the 90th Psalm. Psalm 90 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. And I want to talk to you about God, time, and your new year. God, time, and your new year. Now you might wonder, why God? Well, maybe the answer to that seems obvious, but just to remind ourselves of why we think about and talk about God. Uh, the God of whom I speak, the God with whom we have to do, is the one true and living God. He is the one who is the anchor point in a chaotic world, the one who is our Lord and Savior, the one with whom we have to do for all things of life, the reference point for all that is good, right, and true, the opposite of all that is wrong, evil. Who, who better to talk about on a day like this than God? But why time? Why talk about time? Well, when you realize how much it is that our lives are defined around the clock. Think about even the ways this morning that time has defined your activity or determined your activity. You got up by an alarm clock, possibly, unless you've got a good body clock that gets you up naturally. Uh, you got in your car at an appointed time so that you could arrive here at an appointed time uh, so that we could take part in worship and fellowship. And then I was watching my watch when determining to call you back to order so we could get to the study of the Word. We measure our lives in hours and minutes and days and weeks and months and years. Time is such a prominent part of the way that we live out our lifespan. So we think about God, we think about time, but what about your new year? Well, it's at the intersection of the new year that time is often uh, given additional attention and prominence. Think about even the image that's not uncommon at this time of year. The, um, the old year is likened to an old, frail man stooped in the shoulders with a long, scraggly beard. The new year is characterized as a robust baby with a banner uh, with the number on it, the year that is about to come. And we're reminded of the impact of the passing of time on our very lives. As time passes, we grow old. And a new year anticipates new life and new beginnings and the vitality that is associated with the new year. The new year is often a time when people make resolutions or set goals. We sometimes joke about resolutions as those decisions we make that are made to be broken. But people seriously, and rightly so, determine uh, with a longer view than the moment to say, what is it in my life that needs some attention? Or setting of goals, what is it that God would have for us in the coming year as we can best see it now? And we look ahead and with hope and with dependence upon our God. And so this morning as we come to this, this occasion, we think about God and time and your new year. Now when we place God in juxtaposition to time, we're reminded that God is the sovereign of time. He created it, and he, uh, and, and he determined that our experiences in this life would be measured by it. He's not limited by time. 
Indeed, he exists above and outside of time. But he works his plans for you and me within the framework of time. I would remind you that we're, we're told even of our redemption by the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians that at the appointed time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And so God operates his plan within the framework of time, though he is in no way bound by it. And while we might think of that plan in terms of the grand scope of themes such as redemption, I want you this morning to think even of God orchestrating time in your life as one person living in a small region of the planet at a point in time that is defined by the one God, the one eternal God. This morning our text is Psalm 90. And I want to direct your attention to the subject of God, time, and your new year from this passage. It's a passage of Scripture that calls us to consider God and time, but it's a rather striking setting for that consideration. And so if you'll follow along, we'll begin reading at the beginning of Psalm 90 with verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger. And by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Let's pause there. This psalm is known as a wisdom psalm. It's a family of something like 25 of the 150 that we have in the Bible. Common among the wisdom psalms are number 1 and number 19, but this one also is identified as a wisdom psalm. As a wisdom text, its emphasis rests upon honoring God and bringing glory to Him in the everyday practical ways of living. To put it another day, another way, wisdom entails living our lives God's way. It's not like that popular song that Frank Sinatra used to sing, I did it my way. We would recast that song to say, if you're wise, you do it God's way. And it touches every dimension of our being. 
from the moment that you as a believer in Jesus Christ repented of your sin and turned in faith to him, you took on a new Lord and a new master who would set the course and direction of your life and call you to obedience in it. That's the heart of wisdom. It's living your life as a redeemed believer God's way. Now in this 90th Psalm, which by the way is the oldest of the Psalms, the 150 in the collection, we find wisdom in a striking setting. The author of this Psalm is Moses, not David, Moses. You can see that right there in the superscription if you look at it. In my Bible it says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Moses wrote this Psalm against the backdrop of a very dark period of the nation of Israel's history. Dark, it was early in their history as a liberated, redeemed people. Under the leadership of Moses, the author of this psalm, they had left the land of bondage in Egypt. God had taken them by miracles from that land of bondage. He had taken them to Mount Sinai and entered into a covenant relationship with them. In the making of that covenant, they had proclaimed their faith. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, they said. And God rose to be their defender and provider and protector as, the, as they dwelt there at Sinai. And then as he led them to a point where they would enter into the promised land, the land that he had given to them through their forefather Abraham generations before. We'll say more about what happened along the way. But the fact is that Moses reflects upon a 40-year period that he found himself as the leader of this nation in which the nation wandered in the wilderness outside the promised land. Forty years in the wilderness. And in those 40 years, an entire generation was going to die off as a consequence of their sin of rebellion against God. And so it's against that reality that Moses reflects and writes this psalm. It brings together those issues of God, time, and spiritual wisdom. And Moses teaches us through this psalm, the wise way is to make the most of every day of our time as good stewards of that gift of life from God and to spend every moment of our lives for His glory. That's the way of wisdom, according to this psalm. Now, the movement of this psalm begins with reflection. Moses is looking at reality, and he expresses it through his pen. But he moves from reflection to response at the turning point of the psalm that we'll come to a little bit later at verse 11. Reflection to response in light of the reflection that he's given. So we begin the reflection at verses 1 through 6. And if you want to take notes, you'll find the skeletal outline on the back of the bulletin with the blank strategically placed so you can't figure out what the points are until I tell you. I remember once when I was serving as a pastor and the, uh, there was a particular uh, fellow in the, in the uh, congregation who made it his challenge to see if he could fill out the blanks in the outline before I preached. He was usually pretty close, but I think this one will make it a little more difficult for you because I left a lot of blanks. But here is the first reflection that we find in this text in verses 1 to 6. 
Moses begins by reflecting on the fact of our mortality in view of God's eternity. The fact of our mortality in view of God's eternity. Now you can see the opposing ideas there. They're opposites. We are mortal. God is eternal. Now look at that first verse. This is a very powerful keynote profession with which to begin the psalm. And frankly, it sets a very positive tone to what we're going to find in a few moments is kind of a, a pessimistic set of reflections. But listen to the power of this statement in one short sentence. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now, do you notice his starting point? He starts with God. The place that we should begin every consideration and every thought and action of life. What do we know about God? And here the psalmist calls to our attention that the covenant-making and covenant-keeping sovereign Lord of Israel and for you and me as well. The covenant-making, covenant-keeping Lord has been a dwelling place or refuge for his people in all generations now when Moses wrote that the generations weren't as numerous as they are now because Moses wrote this way back before the time of Christ but that which was true from his experience and his observation is equally true today on the cusp of 2018 God is still the dwelling place the refuge for his people in all generations now hang on to that this morning because that provides a point of anchor in a chaotic world. We might look at chaos on the national or international scene and be troubled by it. But you know, I know that, uh, as I know many of you in this congregation, that there is chaos in your personal world too today for some. It may be the chaos of illness. It may be the chaos of, of ruptured relationships. Whatever it is, remember that God is your dwelling place and your refuge. Now, the translation that I have uh, translates that expression, your dwelling place. You may have a translation that has something a little different, or maybe a marginal note in your Bible uh, offers the alternate translation of hiding place or refuge. All of those are fair translations of the term. But particularly, they, 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 uh, the uh, various translations kind of amplify the idea that Moses expresses here. When you think of dwelling place, you just realize it's a place to be. Everybody has to be somewhere, right? So, I mean, this is, prof this is philosophically profound and deep. Everybody has to be somewhere. For the moment, your dwelling place is right here because this is where you are. Wherever you go, there you are. So there's a sense in which you have mobile dwelling places. Usually we think of dwelling places a little bit more settled perhaps. But a, you know, a place to be isn't always good news for all people. You could go to some areas in our region and you might find people whose dwelling place is on a street or in a cardboard box under an overpass. And you think, that's really not the ideal place to be. But when you add the idea of a hiding place or a refuge, you're adding that which is not only a place to be, but a place of protection and security and safety. 
That's what a refuge is. Now think of it in, in terms of your home. Because your home is both a dwelling place and a refuge for you. It's the place that you go to plant yourself at the end of a, of a day lived in the public somewhere. Maybe you're off at work or you're off at school or you're out on the streets in the community or you're in the park or wherever it is that you go in the course of the business of your day. But as the day winds down, you, uh, you move to a particular place that is the standard location for your dwelling. It appears on, uh, in the church directory as your address. Or it appears in the legal documents and on your utility bills and other such things as the place that you dwell. But beyond that, it's the place of protection from the exposure of life outside. It might be the protection from the torrential rain we had this past week. Where if you're outside on the street for any length of time, you're going to be drenched to the bone. And you're probably going to be a little cold in the process, too, for being so wet. But when you enter your refuge, it's dry. Or maybe it's out in the, the public world in which you live and dealing with some of the, the uh, irritations of, of uh, careless and discourteous drivers or uh, other sorts of, of stress and tension that might be part of your your daily world. But when you go home, you can enter the privacy of your refuge and you can close the door to those kinds of stresses. Now that's a picture that the psalmist wants us to see as it relates to God. Not a physical reality, though he provides those physical protections for us, but it's personal. It's God, and in relationship with God, we find that dwelling place of safety and protection and security in the face of the chaos of our world. And so he says in that, that profound statement, you, Lord, have been our dwelling place the covenant-making, covenant-keeping, sovereign Lord have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now, maybe we would ask the question, well, how can that be? All generations, that's a lot of people and a lot of years coming and going. Well, it's possible because as the psalmist goes on to say in verse 2, in other words that we'll look at in a moment, but in a nutshell he says, God is eternal. That's how he can be the dwelling place for all generations because he is through and beyond all generations. Now, how do we know that? Well, look what he says in verse 2. It begins with a point of time reference, doesn't it? Before. Now, before presumes something that has a, a point, probably a point of origin or a point of beginning, but it speaks of something that precedes that in a time sequence. So he says, before the mountains were born. Or, adding a, a personal involvement of God in the next line, or you gave birth to the earth and the world. Before this came about, God was there. Because God is eternal. He precedes time because he created it. He precedes space because he created it as represented in his creative acts of the earth and the world here. Now, of course, that takes us right back, doesn't it, in, in our memories to Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, 
which is the way that when we who are time-oriented think of startings, beginning, before beginning, nothing, after beginning, something, right? Because beginnings are beginnings, right? But in the beginning, there's already someone here. Because in the beginning, He creates. And what a beautiful display of creation power we find in Genesis 1 when God simply speaks, let there be, and there was. And all of this created, using the language here of mountains born and giving birth to the earth and the world, another word picture for saying God is the omnipotent creator of all of the world. Before the earth, and by the way, before the entrance of the human race into the earth through creation on the sixth day, before you and I and our ancestors were created, God is, for God is eternal. He says it another way at the end of that second verse when he says, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From everlasting to everlasting. Now, the idea of everlasting is unlimited time, past and future. That's the, the picture that's involved here. And the, the best way I know to think about that for my little, little uh, limited intelligence is to think of a road in the flattest place you know. Now, for me, that's Interstate 80 moving through Nebraska or some stretches of Interstate 70 in western Kansas because the land there is flat. They don't have the Cascades. They don't have the Rocky Mountains. They've got flat land. Good for growing crops. Very flat. And on Interstate 80, let's just put ourselves there for a moment. Suppose we're standing by the side of the road. And we look to the east. As far as we can see, there's road. But there's a, a point where things get a little blurry to our vision because we don't have laser eyes. And we can look to the west and see the same phenomenon. Now, looking to the east, there comes a moment in time when something appears on the horizon to our sight. At its initial appearance to us, we can't really discern what it is, but we can see there's something there. And as we keep our eyes fixed there, it keeps coming, it gets larger. We see it more in, in terms of its reality. We discern that it's a car. Um, maybe it's night and they've got the, they have the lights on. Maybe it's day and we just are looking at the light reflection on the object. But, but as it comes closer, we be, we're able to discern it more. Finally, it comes right beside us and we can see as fully as our sight will permit what this phenomenon is. But it's continuing. It goes on west and we follow its course. There comes a point where that car vanishes from sight. Now, the car did not come into existence the moment that we saw it in the east. Nor did it cease to be when it vanished from our sight in the west. That time between is what we who are lasting are able to comprehend. But that which is everlasting is that which goes beyond the limits of our capacity to understand. And that's what this verse would have us understand about God. It's so difficult, if not impossible, for you and me to break out of the sense of time. Because we're created in it and we live by God's design within it. 
But the fact is that God is in no way bound by time. He lives from everlasting to everlasting. He is, and He is God. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me a sense of I'm finite, but I am dealing with one who is gracious and infinite. And His grace in giving a dwelling place and a refuge to His own is to all generations. Well, as we continue into verse 3, we are reminded um, that we are of passing generations. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men. Now, there's a stark contrast. It's interesting that God is still the actor here. Because this God who is our refuge is also the God who determined and decreed and instructed from the beginning that the human creature that he had made was to live in obedience to him and and to uh, follow his dictates in a garden with respect to some tree. Remember that? Genesis chapter 3 gives us the account of it. And you remember the account that though God had made clear his provision of all that Adam and Eve could ever need, he put on restriction one tree in the garden. He said, don't eat of that tree, for the day that you eat of that tree, you will die. Now, this was not a blind side, no surprise. God was very clear in the instruction given, but you know how it went. Enter Satan in the form of a servant. He enticed Adam and Eve to partake of the fruit. She took it, gave to her husband. They both ate of the fruit. And now a God who is perfect in his justice must uphold his word. He said, the day that you eat of that fruit, you will die. And death was introduced into human experience in that moment. When the psalmist says, you turn man back into dust... He's recalling the words of Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. For it's in that verse that God, in the uh, uh, sequence of judgments that he pronounced upon the serpent and upon the woman and upon the man, he reminded them that the consequence of death was this. You were taken from dust. And we know that from Genesis chapter 2 where where the Bible teaches us that God took the dust of the earth and he formed that first man and from that into that, that lump of clay he breathed the breath of life and the man became a living being. He said, you were taken from dust and I imbued you with my very breath, made you in my very own image, he said. But as the consequence of your sin, you were taken from dust and to dust you will return. And that's the sentence of death passed on all of the human race. And so all the generations for whom God is a dwelling place are generations that come like that New Year's baby and go at a time appointed by God. In verse 4, he turns his attention back to God the eternal one. And notice the pictures he gives us here. A thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by. A thousand years. Think of that. 
None of us will draw breath on this planet for a thousand years. I'm pretty confident of that. The oldest person on record lived 969 years. He didn't make a thousand, and that was a long time ago. His name was Methuselah, if you're wondering. Go ahead and name your baby Methuselah, but don't think you're naming a realistic expectation for your child. A thousand years to God, because he's not bound by time, like a, a forgotten yesterday, one of those dates that just blurs. We don't remember what we were doing on March 7th of 1922, perhaps. Well, no, that year none of us would remember, probably. Let's make it, uh, let's make it 2004. Wouldn't tax the memory as much, nor would it tax the lifespan either. We don't remember a day like that, most likely, because those are just those ordinary days that pass one after another after another after another and just become dim memories. A thousand years to God is like that. Now think what a thousand years holds in human history. If you back up a thousand years from now, you'd be uh, roughly the time of the Crusades. And in that thousand year period, you would have such things as the Renaissance, the Protestant Reformation, the Industrial Revolution, the uh, founding of the United States as an independent uh, republic, the landing of a man on the moon, Think of all the things that have occurred within that framework of a thousand years. We're impressed. And the truth be told, we only know the drop in the bucket of all that transpired on the planet over the course of that length of time. But the psalmist says, for, for God, it's just no more than a forgotten yesterday. He puts it another way when he says it's like a watch in the night. The night watch was one that was four hours in length. A four-hour time period out of a 24-hour period uh, of time. But it's a night watch, according to the psalmist, which is a time that most people will be asleep. So in effect, it's saying all of these, these uh, times that are impressive to us are like sleep time to God. You know how it is when you go to sleep. You, uh, you, you lie down in the bed and, or in the recliner, depending on the, the state of things at your house, and you pass from awareness, and then you awaken at some point, and it's like the two are, are right together. You look at the clock, and you realize, well, time passed. And if somebody else was in the house and observing you, they could say, yes, time passed, and, and I counted it off, and I counted the number of times you breathed or whatever other things have been observed about you, but you're not aware of any of that. For you, the events are juxtaposed right next to each other. That's how quickly the time passes when you're asleep. And essentially what he's saying of God is that time with God is just like a watch in the night that goes without even being noticed or being aware. He continues to describe this, uh, this frailty of our human experience in verses 5 and 6 when he uses the imagery of, of grass. You swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they're like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. Now all of this reflection in these first six verses have added up to a contrast, a huge contrast. The God who is eternal and everlasting compared with you and me who live under the, the frailty and the shortness of a lifespan. Now... If we didn't have verse 1, we might see this as a rather pessimistic description of things because it reminds us of a reality. And though it's not always the reality we want to think about, 
It is a reality nonetheless. And so Moses continues in this vein of reflection by introducing in verses 7 through 10 the cause of our mortality. And so in verses 7 through 10, we find the cause of our, of our mortality in view of God's justice. The cause of our mortality in view of God's justice. Now, he's already hinted at this in the earlier part of the psalm because he spoke about the fact that God calls us to return to dust. God is very much in control of the span of our life. But he elaborates it further here when he says, We have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you. Those secret sins that we would like to keep uh, shrouded in secrecy have been exposed to the full light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. Soon it's gone and we fly away. Now again, you see that that reality of human mortality, but notice how he explicitly describes it in relationship to sin. And as he sees our mortality as the consequence in God's system of justice for our sin. Now I already mentioned to you the fact that the background historically for this psalm is the wilderness wanderings. We won't take the time this morning, but I would encourage you sometime, even this afternoon, to read Numbers 13. Numbers chapter 13, because there's the historic event that accounts for 40 years of wilderness wandering. God had led the nation of Israel from Mount Sinai to the gateway to the promised land, a little place called Kadesh Barnea. There Israel had sent in a spy mission consisting of 12 individuals, one from each of the 12 tribes, and they went in to scope out the land. They came back and they, this is the land that flows with milk and honey. This is a great place, but said 10 of them. There are giants in the land. There's no way we can take this land and, and uh, be victorious. It, it's, it's impossible for us. Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb by name, said, uh, yeah, there are giants there, but we've got a God who's a giant killer. That's the Vogel paraphrase. And so Joshua and Caleb said, let's rise up and take it. But the nation listened to the 10. And when you read chapter 13, you hear just exactly how rebellious, that's the word that's used there, how they rebelled against the God who had graciously redeemed them from slavery, had brought them into covenant, uh, renewed covenant relationship, had taken them and led them, had assured them that he would be their refuge and their dwelling place for all of their generations. He's taken them to this land and they rebel and refuse to go in. God says that is sin. Their lack of faith coupled with their disobedience is sin. And so God says, okay. They wanted to go back to Egypt. And so God, after Moses intercedes, interceded, didn't destroy them, but he said, all right, I'll give you 40 years taking laps around Mount Sinai. And in those 40 years, that generation was going to die off. That's why all this discussion and reflection here on the reality of death, because Moses was leading this nation and he was watching his fellow countrymen, sometimes in, in events that would take thousands in a day, sometimes in the more normal course of, of, uh, of people dying in the course of their, their normal and regular activities, but the reality of death was all about him over that 40-year period of time. 
And so in the context of this psalm, there was that particular event that Israel experienced the justice of God in the uh, ways it's described here in verse 7 and following. But you know, beyond that is the reality that death is the universal punishment for sin. And it's not merely the particular events of our lives that are rebellious against God, but it's the fact that we are fallen by our nature. And that our only hope is in a God who redeems. And if we refuse to receive His redemption, if we refuse to live our lives in submission to His leadership and to His authority over our lives, then we are going to experience the consequences of our sin in our everyday living. That is the reality that the reflections in verses 7 through 10 bring forward. And the reality of our mortality is simply a reminder of that fact. So we have the sobering reminder that the cause of our mortality is the enforcement of God's justice. And if that were the end of things, this would have been a very pessimistic sermon. Please don't leave yet. The final several verses of the psalm, we didn't read them, but I just want you to glance over them for a moment. The final verses of the psalm turn from reflection to response. And the response is a prayer. That's why the superscription of the psalm calls it a prayer of Moses, the man of God. The wisdom here is a prayer uh, that centers around wisdom and wise request bringing. Now, just allow your eye to drift beginning at verse 13 over the kinds of things that Moses asks God for in view of the realities upon which he's just reflected. He asks in prayer that God would manifest his gracious ways toward his people. Mercy, particularly in verse 13. For renewed loving kindness in verse 14. For renewed joy in the Lord in verses 14 and 15. For a manifestation of His gracious work and majesty in verses 16 and 17. And for permanence or confirmation of our accomplishments for Him in verse 17. And you know, I can with uh, confidence say that the God with whom we have to do is inclined to answer those prayers. And so when you find yourself in the chaos of the world in which we live, these aren't bad things to ask of God, that he would show them in our lives, not only with respect to those things that are outside us and external to us, but to the very condition of our own hearts toward him. Those are the requests of verses 13 to 17, but I want to land the plane this morning in verses 11 and 12, because this is also a part of the prayer of Moses. And it's the point in the prayer where he links most directly the realities of the reflection of God, the eternal refuge for sinners like you and me. And he shows us how that wisdom understands that connection and then asks God for the things that matter in realizing His grace in the realities of our lives. Look at verse 11 and 12 again. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear 
that is due you. Now, there's a good wrap-up of things that he said about God the just. And he asks, who understands this? Well, we have a capability of understanding enough, believe me. There are probably things we don't even have the capacity to fully understand, but the psalmist has the wisdom to realize that we need to, uh, we need to acknowledge our deficits and we need to live out our understandings. And so the prayer that we find in verse 12 is the prayer I want to leave you with this morning. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do you notice how this is the believer in the quest for spiritual wisdom in time with reference to God? Interestingly, this isn't a resolution. It's a prayer. It's a plea. And so for the third division of that outline, if you're you're filling it in, verses 11 and 12 give us the plea for a wise heart in view of our accountability. The plea for a wise heart in view of our accountability. The psalmist says to the infinite, gracious God, I want you to school me. Teach me. Teach me to number my days. Interesting word, number. We count things, don't we? You grew up on Sesame Street, you remember the count. He counted everything. And we always thought that was clever, and it was a good way maybe for kids to learn something about mathematics. But, but that, the, the count was not in a course in accounting, was he? There's a difference between counting and accounting. Now, I don't know a whole lot about accounting. There are people who make it a profession. And the accountant, I'm told, isn't satisfied with, well, as long as within a couple bucks, we're all right. Accountants have to account for every penny. Teresa, you're nodding your head. You know these things. You have to account for every penny. Now, I know accounting at the level of the personal checkbook. And I know that it's important to be exact in this business, right? You write a check for $40.38. You don't just go to the check register and write, oh, see, I think it was about $40.00. Put $40 in your register, then you write a check for $257.37, and you ah, I think it was around $250. So you write, what's going to happen if you keep your checkbook that way? There will come a day when you'll get a letter from the bank that says not only you don't have the number of dollars that you think you have, you owe us money. You've overdrawn your account because you have not counted those numbers with precision and accuracy. Every number counts to the accountant. And every day counts to the believer. Every day, he says, teach me to number every day. Why? So that at the end of every day, I may present to you a heart of wisdom. That word heart stands for the whole of life in this context. And so he's saying here that at the end of the day you will have answered my prayer if you have empowered and enabled me over the course of this day to have thought and spoken and acted in ways that manifest your glory, O Lord, in my world. That is a heart of wisdom. 
So what is it that wisdom looks like? What is wisdom, everyday wisdom, that manifests the glory of God look like on the job? It looks like a faithful, honest day's work for a day's pay. What does everyday wisdom that manifests the glory of God look like at school? It looks like working hard in your studies, honestly earning your grades, treating your classmates with respect and kindness. What does everyday wisdom that manifests the glory of God look like at home? It looks like a husband who loves his wife as Christ loved the church. It looks like a wife who respects her husband as the church honors Christ. It involves parents training their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And it involves children who honor and obey their parents. What does everyday wisdom that manifests the glory of God look like in the community? It looks like loving your neighbor as you love yourself. What does everyday wisdom that manifests the glory of God look like in your speech? Speaking words that edify and give grace to those who hear. What does everyday wisdom that manifests the glory of God look like in your passions? Manifesting self-control, or better yet, manifesting spirit control and the fruit of the spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. These are the things that mark a heart of wisdom. And they're the beginning points that the psalmist says we should bring to God in prayer so that those days that remain to us are filled with his wisdom. You know, we can't undo the days behind. But you notice how it is that prayer looks forward? So does hope. All of those things that, are, that, that the promises of God address are things that look to our future. That's why it is that in the grace of God, we don't have to be beat up with our past and with our problems. We turn to God with hope and faith because God is the God of our future. And we lay hold on God, the God of our future in prayer. And thus the prayers that we find expressed in this psalm, particularly that prayer that God would teach us to number our days, that we may present to him a heart of wisdom. So I'm going to challenge you this morning in your new year to begin every day with that prayer. As you rise every morning among the other things that you pray for, pray that God will make this day count for his glory. And when you put your head on the pillow each night, I want you to ask yourself and to ask God, did this day count toward a heart of wisdom? May God help us. Let's pray. Our Father, we acknowledge that those things that we aspire to from you are beyond our capability in ourselves. And yet we thank you that you are the God who is infinite in all respects and the God whose infinite grace desires to treat us with favor 
We desire hearts that will seek his favor and receive it as you offer it. And so, Lord, we pray even now, as we stand on the cusp of a new year, that each day for each one of us will be counted carefully that we may apply and receive from you a heart of wisdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.